check out my new book, Reach All Readers at reachallreaders.com. When you pre-order, you'll get special access to my Science of Reading mini course. Learn more at reachallreaders.com. What are the signs of dyslexia? What should you do if you suspect dyslexia? And what can classroom teachers do to support all students as they learn to read? We've got the answers today with Heather O'Donnell, certified dyslexia practitioner and owner of New Paltz Multisensory Tutoring Clinic. Welcome to Triple R Teaching, where we encourage you to think differently about education by helping you reflect, refine, and recharge. This isn't just about trying something new as you educate those entrusted to your care. We'll equip you with simple strategies and practical tips that will fill your toolbox and reignite your passion for teaching. It's time to reflect, refine, and recharge with your host, Anna Geiger. Hello, everybody. Today, we have the honor of listening to a conversation with Heather O'Donnell. She is the owner of a tutoring practice founded in 2018, and she and her team are currently supporting 68 families, both online and in person, with multisensory reading, math, and writing instruction. And she is here today to talk to us about dyslexia, what the signs of dyslexia are, what parents and teachers can do, and how they support learners at their facility. Welcome, Heather. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Before we went live here, you and I talked about your background in learning how to teach reading. And like so many of us, you learned the balanced literacy way in college. Mm -hmm. But pretty early on, you said that you had some experiences with teaching with foundations, and that kind of changed your perspective. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, So I started my career as a general education teacher. I've always been passionate about early childhood. um, And I was actually teaching preschool in a private preschool in the New York City area. And I found that I was drawn to a student in my class who had a see it. And so she had a special education teacher coming into my classroom to work with her to facilitate the environment for her. And so I made a slight career shift. I went back to school to get a second master's in early childhood special education. And while I completed that coursework, I worked at the Aaron School, which is a private special ed school in New York City. And at the Aaron School, we worked with um, small classes of eight to 12 students. There was a teacher and an assistant teacher in every single classroom. My first year, I was the assistant teacher in a kindergarten classroom, and we taught kids to u- to read using foundations. Coming from a balanced literacy graduate program, to me, this was just amazing. I, I had no idea you could teach children to read sound by sound, um, letter by letter, and I really loved it. I loved taking the material. I loved bringing out the multisensory materials, you know, adding things to make it interesting and have the children come alive with the learning. And for me, looking back as a teacher, this was one of those formative experiences that I just sort of stumbled into, but it really shaped who I was as a teacher. When I left that school, I bought my own foundations kit and continued to work with students privately. And then I put all that away when I took five or six years off um, having my own children. And then when I came back to teaching again in formal classrooms, you know, out, I pulled out the letter tiles and, you know, that is the approach that I feel makes the most sense for kids when they're learning to read, especially at the early elementary level. In the time that I was looking to get back into teaching full time, there were lots and lots of teachers, you know, at this point, 
um, it's well known that we were sort of headed more into a teacher shortage, but in, I guess it was like 2015 or so, you know, when I was looking for positions, they were really hard to come by. So I was able to work in several districts as a leave replacement or short-term teaching, and I was working as a special ed teacher. So I had several positions as a self-contained classroom teacher, which is amazing work. The kids are fantastic, but um, being a self-contained classroom teacher is a lot. Everything mm -hmm. needs to be visual. Every, all the systems and the routines need to be visual. You're talking about individual visual schedules. You're talking about completely tailored experiences. And that was the, my last position. Um, I was working in a local district as a K-2 autism classroom teacher. And there was a long commute involved and at my own kids. And I just reached that point of you know needing to sort of step back move things around in my life. And in the fall of 2018, I decided to take the Wilson certification, which I'd gained from that district, in order to better support students learning to read. And I opened my own tutoring practice. And originally, it was just me. Now I have a team of certified Orton-Gillingham providers. We have Wilson certified, and we have Orton-Gillingham certified through the academy tutors who help me support so many more families than I could on my own. So I know that many of the students, not all, but many of the students that your team teaches have dyslexia, which we know it has to do a lot with phonological processing. Mm -hmm. um, there's other parts of the definition, and I could direct people to a blog post series I wrote all about dyslexia, which really gives a lot more information. But could you talk to us about you know, the signs of dyslexia that a teacher or parent might see that would alert them that we've got to do some more digging to find out what's going on here? Sure. There's a, there's a belief that you can't diagnose dyslexia until about the age of seven. But there is actually research that indicates there are signs even before a child enters school. You can, um, a child who is late to talking, for example, or has difficulty remembering letters, numbers, you know, preschool curriculum, colors, numbers, nursery rhymes. You know, um, nursery rhymes are considered a little traditional at this point, but the rhyming, the sing-song aspect is an important step towards establishing an understanding of rhyming words and fluency. Um, verbal fluency. And often kids with dyslexia who have difficulty identifying rhymes and have difficulty recalling and retaining those nursery rhymes um, when they're practiced in the classroom. So those are some signs that you can see before a child even steps into a kindergarten classroom. Once they become school age, I think the biggest indicator that I hear time after time from our clients is you know, you have a re and teachers that you have a really bright, capable child who is intelligent and so smart, and their reading progress is just so much behind that profile. And the teachers are a little confused and not sure what's going on, and the parents are a little confused and not sure what's going on. Um, a child with dyslexia at school age will have trouble with spelling. Spelling is really difficult because, again, spelling is harder to a certain extent than reading. When we're reading, we're looking at words on a page and we're interpreting them. But when we're spelling or writing, we have to understand the sounds. We have to hold on to the sounds. We have to remember that how to form the letters on the paper and go ahead and complete that physical motion, which for kindergarten or first grader, like, that's a lot. I mean, writing is a huge demand, and that's why kids with dyslexia really struggle with it. School-age kids with dyslexia take a long time to do reading and writing tasks. Homework takes forever, and there's usually tears, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And they avoid reading. I hear from client after client. You know, my, I, you know, I've had teachers come to me, and they're like, I'm a teacher, and I love reading, and my child just 
you know, isn't there, won't do it, not interested, something's wrong and we don't know what's going on. When teachers and parents sort of notice all these little things and they're coming together with a child who is significantly behind where they should be in terms of their reading expectation, that's when as awareness increases, hopefully it's time to take the next step and look into what else could be going on here and how can we get this child more support. Do you think it's necessary if these problems are all showing themselves that a parent should seek out a dyslexia diagnosis or should they should that not be in the top of their list? I usually recommend to families to start with a school evaluation. That's always my first step. I say, you know, I recommend to them if they have any questions about their child's learning, that should be step 1. It's free. It will provide a basic look at your child's strengths and weaknesses. Now, unfortunately, requesting an evaluation from school districts can be a little bit, um, you get what you ask for, but if you don't necessarily request a uh, phonological awareness assessment like the CTOP or, you know, if you don't request the right assessment, it might not be included necessarily. So there's a little bit of um, a learning curve there for families, but that is typically the first step that I ask families to take when they come and they're wondering what's going on with their child. Now, school evaluations can take a couple months to get done. You put in the request, the testing has to be done. So typically what we would do is we would begin, if, if a parent comes to us looking to start tutoring, we will make sure to do our own evaluation so that we have a clear starting point that can then be referred back to. And then we will start to work with a student um, and start to remediate and support their, their reading difficulty. But I typically encourage parents to start at the school level because sometimes that can be enough. A, a school, you know, a meeting is held, a school might decide that the child is, you know, is um, deserving of an IEP. And at that point, you know, services can be provided. And then if the parent chooses to go on to a private evaluation and a formal diagnosis through a doctor, they can. But ultimately, it's about supporting the child in the school environment. So what are the assessments that you give when you first meet a student? So we offer several. We offer a, an evaluation package, which families who are often interested in an IEP and getting their child classified to receive more support at school will seek. We give the WIST, which is the Word Inventory um, Spelling Test. I always get that wrong. Uh, word identification spelling test. And it is one of the hallmarks of the Wilson um, reading program. It's sort of the the beginning evaluation that um, records all the data. It is standardized. It provides percentiles and standard scores and all of that. So we offer that as a standalone package for parents who perhaps are not necessarily sure they're interested in tutoring, but are looking to offer more support to their child in school and seeking a classification. When a family just comes to us, they're ready to start tutoring, we provide, um, we give their child what's called the WADE, which is the similar test to the WIST, it's just not standardized. It's the Wilson, um, you know, entry-level test. It goes through all the their skills. It will show the weaknesses that will be remediated through tutoring. And then my Orton-Gillingham providers will give the Galston-Ellis or an equivalent test of their, um, you know, that they prefer, they're more comfortable with. And then again, you know, it's really important to us to make sure that we get that starting point, both in terms of tracking the child's progress and making sure we're remediating this, the areas of weakness, but also so that if a family does try to get more support from a school, we can provide that information for them as well. So I know that as a teacher, 
I, I look back and I certainly know now that there were definitely a couple of kids that probably had dyslexia. At the time, I really knew nothing about it at all. Um, people listening to this podcast are probably quite a bit more educated than I was at that time, 20 some years ago, but they still might not know what can I do to help this child within my classroom? And I think we both agree that a lot of this starts with the tier one instruction. So maybe we can talk about what core reading instruction should look like for everyone, which we know will actually greatly decrease the number of kids that may need to be classified as dyslexic because they're getting their needs met already in the regular instruction. So can you talk to what that should look like and maybe what it should not look like? Oh, this is a great question, but definitely a loaded one because I think what I would describe in a perfect world of what it should look like, I also recognize that not every teacher has the ability to necessarily implement that. You know, schools have curriculum, schools have expectations, and, you know, I absolutely feel for the teachers who are in positions and in classrooms where they want to move one way, but there are real constraints that make it a complicated situation. So I just feel like I have to say that off the top. Um, You know, I think in a perfect world where price is no object and I could design the curriculum for every classroom, you know, I think... Every teacher should have some basic Orton-Gillingham training, you know, and be able to directly and explicitly teach the sequence and the structure of our language to their students. Um, You know, I myself have children who took to reading like ducks to water, but I still see the deficits in their understanding of the structure of the language, you know, prefixes, suffixes, morphology. It's a code and it can be taught. And I personally think every child would benefit from even, you know, maybe not an in-depth ongoing study of it, but just basics. This is how the language works. It's not wild and crazy. It comes from Anglo-Saxon. It comes from French. It comes from all these places. Um, And so I think, you know, whether it's a curriculum, you know, like um, Spire's one that I've grown. uh, I have several tutors who are using Spire right now and, that's a pretty great tier one practice uh, um, curriculum. It's direct. It's explicit. Would it necessarily meet the needs of a s- child who's severely dyslexic? Maybe not, but it provides, you know, the direct instruction in spelling, the direct instruction in decoding. It provides decodable stories all embedded in it. Um, I personally would love to see, you know, more use of that in my area in general in, in the classroom. Um Decodable stories, you know, that's such a huge piece when kids are struggling with reading, you know, teach a skill, give them practice in it, give them a decodable story to practice more, and then move on to the next skill like that, the ability for more teachers to be able to approach reading instruction that way and in the tier one, I think would be amazing and make a big difference for those kids who are struggling a little bit when, um, you know, there are too many untaught concepts coming at them at once, because that's the challenge with some of the programs. Um, You know, even the basic books have these skills to them that if they're not taught and kids can't decode them, then that leads to um, guessing at the words as opposed to actually reading them. Mm -hmm. Any practices you can list that teachers should try to avoid if they have the freedom to do that? Of course. I mean, I think when students are struggling, it's really important to scaffold the classroom so as not to put them on the spot for reading out loud or reading in groups. Um, You know, I think 
reducing the amount of independent reading time or partner reading time for kids who are really struggling is huge, particularly in the structure of reading workshop models. Uh, I know I had a client who came to me a few years ago and described, you know, she would sit and hold her book, but she had no idea how to read it. And then she would get so nervous, she would start pulling at her eyelashes because she just didn't know what to do. Um, and I think it's, it, you know, the classroom teacher's job is so complicated and so challenging, but I think the quiet ones are the ones that it's so important to check in with and really, you know, pull out um, some words on a sheet of paper without any pictures. Can, can they actually read them? Because again, if there's a strong reading skill base, reading in a book, reading on a blank piece of paper, no pictures, it shouldn't make a difference. But often when that picture support disappears, the struggling readers really start to flounder. So in terms of writing assignments, when kids are really struggling with language, using word banks, using sentence stems to get them started, you know, providing the word, the vocabulary words and the content words and not asking students to hold on to that information and spell it and put it into the context of the curriculum, you know, whether it's, I don't know, forests or science and things like that, you know, those kinds of supports. But I think the more teachers are able to and willing to sort of brainstorm, you know, if we have to be here, but there's still these deficit skills from the past couple of years, what can we put into place um, to support the learners through, you know, word boxes, sentence stems, models, um, things like that. I think that's really helpful. So rewinding a little bit, you talked about reducing the amount of time that a child with perhaps dyslexia or another reading problem um, has to read independently or read with a partner. I know some people will hear that and say, well, that's what they need. They need practice, um, which is certainly what I've always said. And it, at some point that is very important but can you explain why that's not what's best for a child with a word reading problem? I mean, again, I'm going to caveat my answer with the fact that, you know, if you're one classroom teacher and you have 25 kids or you have 30 kids, there is only so much you can do. Um, I absolutely think kids who are having difficulty learning to read need practice, but I think they need practice with an adult wherever possible, whether it's a Mm -hmm. teacher's aid, whether it's, um, volunteer, parent volunteers coming in to listen because in my experience, and again, through the lens of an early childhood teacher, which was what I was in the classroom, you know, asking another first grader to, mod, you know, moderate or monitor a student's struggling skills has two challenges. Number one, it's really a lot to ask of a first grader. And number two, you know, if a child is really struggling and they're feeling badly about themselves, because again, the challenge with dyslexia is These are such smart, capable kids, and they know. They are looking around at at the kids in their class, and they're seeing that there's understandings happening that they're not getting. You know, I had a first-grade client last year tell me, they don't know how to teach me so that my brain knows how to learn. And he was Mm -hmm. in first grade, and he he Mm -hmm. is a dyslexic. He has a diagnosis of dyslexia, and he knew. So I think that is a challenge, and I think it's a real challenge for teachers who are stretched too thin and managing all these different student needs. But the more that the kids who are struggling are paired with adults to monitor and support mm-hmm. their learning, the better it is for those kids within the challenges of an early childhood classroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing what te- parents and teachers can look for when it comes to dyslexia and next steps as well as the approach that you take at your center. 
Are there any resources like journals or books or anything that you found really helpful that you'd recommend to teachers and parents? You know, I know we've recommended um, Dr. Sally Shaywitz's book, Overcoming Dyslexia. Actually, I think the biggest resource these days would be um, the podcast Hold a Story, which has been amazing by Emily Hanford, and she has written several investigative um, pieces of journalism. The New York Times has been coming out with um, great articles. There was one in Time in Time Magazine that last summer. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me, and I will be sure to link in the show notes to your center, as well as that book that you mentioned and anything else that, that you share with me after we turn off the recorder. Okay. Thank you so much for having me. This was a ton of fun. I love the opportunity to talk all things dyslexia. You can find the show notes for this episode, including a link to Heather's tutoring clinic at themeasuredmom.com forward slash episode 105. Talk to you next time. That's all for this episode of Triple R Teaching. For more educational resources, visit Anna at her home base, themeasuredmom.com, and join our teaching community. We look forward to helping you reflect, refine, and recharge on the next episode of Triple R Teaching.